This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Inner Source Healing Podcast, the program about healing from toxic abuse. My name is Deborah Ashway. I am a licensed clinical mental health therapist and also a licensed clinical addiction specialist. But I have also been where you are now and have experienced the devastating effects of toxic abuse. It has been a long journey through the path of healing, but when we finally awaken from the trance that is so easy to fall into around toxic people, life can be absolutely amazing. It's like you can finally breathe and live and experience life in full, vivid, extraordinary color. And I want to help people get there by healing from the dependency, the codependency, the trauma bonding, and the abuse. The healing process brings us through those long-standing false perceptions that held us back from experiencing a more fulfilling and meaningful life. I am honored to have Sarah Westbrook, the author of Trauma Bonded, a true story of navigating attachments forged in complex PTSD. And I'm reading it now, and I absolutely love it. I actually have the audiobook, and I'm looking forward to my drives and my walks where I can hear it. I hear your voice telling the story in such honest and open and authentic the way you're telling the story. It's so interesting. I love it. Sarah's book offers a raw and courageous account of her personal experience with complex PTSD and trauma bonding. Through her story, she provides valuable insights and guidance for those who are navigating the intricate and often misunderstood world of trauma bonding. And in this interview, I would like to explore the complexities of trauma bonding, especially in the all domains, domain of religion, domains of relationships. I have several clients who are healing from CPTSD due to religious trauma, and I think it deserves to be brought into the light and examined a little bit. Um, Sarah shares her journey of breaking free from trauma bonds, and I am very excited to hear more. So let's dive in. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much. That was a fabulous intro. So thank you. And I'm glad you're enjoying the book. Um, You'll have to let me know when you finish what you think. (laughs) I really am. It's very well written. I, I just, I love it. It just, it keeps me on the edge. Like I keep wanting to hear more. Um, Can you share a brief overview of your personal experience with complex PTSD, sometimes called CPTSD and trauma bonding that led you to write trauma bonded? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the things that we, that has to happen, I guess, for a diagnosis of complex post-traumatic stress disorder is an ex- is a chronic exposure to a triggering event. And so you're going to see um, CPTSD show up in child abuse victims. You're going to see it show up in a lot of your first responders where there have been, you know, these repeated, you know, multiple repeated traumatic event exposures over a prolonged period of time versus your regular PTSD, which is usually single traumatic events with no other traumatic events between, you know, for, for long periods of time. That's kind of from a diagnostic criteria position. That's kind of what we're looking for. And so my story opens um, in the book with my childhood and I start to kind of build the, um, oh goodness, the plot that, you know, I'm, I'm born and raised Mormon. I'm growing up in this Mormon community. It's my norm. And over the course of these early chapters, 
you know, from an adult perspective, looking back, you can see all of these red flags. But for me as a small child, it was just my normal environment. And then when I'm a teenager, you see this huge explosion of abuse, um, a lot of emotional neglect. I was held captive in my own home. Um, my mom basically followed me around everywhere I, I went with my father's approval. Um, and so you see this gross, overt, abusive incident um, that kind of like it just blows up. And then you see my father utilizing our Mormon teachings, you know, from, from the Mormon church teachings and doctrines to support his narcissistic behavior and his abuse of me. Um, what happens after that is that I am now, you know, when we, when we use this word trauma bonded, I, I want to explain that trauma bonded doesn't always mean that there's toxic behavioral patterns. We're really looking at the drive and intent within us that creates this relationship bond, this attachment with an individual. And so what ends up happening after that is you kind of see this split. So I'm trauma bonded with my father and, and my mother from more of a, like a Stockholm syndrome, like the abuser or the neglector and me, the victim. But then you also see the trauma bond showing up between myself and Michael, who is my high school sweetheart. Um, that my parents, my parents went crazy because Michael and I had premarital sex and they did not handle that very well. Um, and so you see my trauma bond with Michael, but then I marry my husband who is not Michael. And so then you see how my trauma bond with Michael and my trauma bond with my parents really influence my choices in unhealthy ways with what I end up exposing my children to, you know, this obligation to please my parents. I'm constantly looking for acceptance from them. And so I'm allowing them to take care of my young children, despite my experiences with them, which is a really common thing to do and working through that mama shame of how did I ever put my children in this position? Um, we see it show up in I'm having an affair at some point that is attached with that trauma bond and I'm walking into it knowing better, not really wanting to harm my husband, but not being able to stop it. And then you also see kind of my relationship with the Mormon church and how it's like how this has lorded over me and controlled my decisions, and put me in places that are really holding me down as an individual, holding me back as a woman. Um, as I begin to recognize this patriarchal society where I'm giving my free will away to religious leaders um, and that, you know, they're supposed to make major life decisions for me because that's what God is saying. And that all this culmination into this toxic realm that finally I'm able to start saying, hey, I don't like this and, and separate myself from it and respond in healthier ways. And then as a therapist, I'm a licensed professional counselor here in the United States. And as a counselor going, huh, this is not uncommon. You know, when, when you're going through it, it's kind of like, I'm the only person suffering from this. Like, you know, all these other affairs, man, these people are just stupid, but mine makes sense and being able to connect the dots and say this attachment style that I'm sharing with these individuals, this visceral kind of feral trauma bond that I'm sharing with these individuals is really influencing the choices that I'm making. And I'm 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 not necessarily making the choice as much as I'm responding to trauma in really unhealthy ways. And so many people are doing it as well. I want to be able to speak about my most ugly moments. You know, as, as you're reading some of the chapters, I'm sure you're like, Sarah, stop, just stop. Don't do that. Do you not see what's happening here? Um, at one point, my editor, uh, my content editor, like emailed me and said, your audience is not going to like your protagonist in these chapters, like at all. And we don't recommend that. We want your audience to be rooting for your protagonist. So your main character, and that's me. And I was like, well, I wasn't very likable during that time period. Like I was messing things up in my life quite a bit. 
And I want my, I want the reader to see this and to go, Hey, I'm not broken. I'm responding in a way that makes sense when I understand how my trauma, how my trauma bonding has influenced my attachments and why I am so dysfunctional. Why am I emotional? Why am I an emotional mess? Why am I lying when I'm not a liar? Why am I cheating when I'm not a cheater? And suddenly, like when you understand those connections, I believe it gives you the power to make significant changes for healing in your life. And so I wanted my clients to see, hey, it's not as scary as you think it is. We can talk about this and you can get better. Right. So that, was the, that was the hope with writing the book. Wow. And that is so incredibly brave and honest and that, I mean, and helpful too, because you're right. People don't understand that they're responding from these programs that are caused from these trauma bonds. Um, That is so helpful. What do you think are, before we get into that a little bit more, what do you think are the biggest signs, effects, and challenges of trauma bonding? Let's start with the signs. Okay. I would say that the signs are you are not making choices that match what your own moral standards are for the world. So I'm not talking about moral standards as assigned by a religious community or by um, uh, your like society community. This is going to be something like I I want to be an honest person. I value honesty. I value integrity, but I'm not showing up as an honest person, as somebody who has integrity. I'm I'm struggling with living up to my own moral code um, would be one of the signs. The other sign is that there is this deep visceral need, almost like an addictive behavioral pattern that you can basically, as you're walking through it, go, this is not smart, but not being able to stop it. So in my clinic, I will see, you know, veterans that have been downrange together. So downrange means in an active war zone, fighting with their brothers and sisters in arms. And I, I have seen them many times come home and in my clinic, it's like, I will bend over backwards at the expense of the people I love the most to go to the aid of somebody that I have a shared traumatic experience with. And it it doesn't matter the cost. I will show up for them because we were in the in the foxholes together. Um, you know, so so things like in my personal case, you know, I cheated on my husband. My husband and I had um at the time that I cheated a great relationship. We were not struggling in our relationship at all. We were best friends, we were well connected, I mean, like emotionally connected, we were emotionally available for each other as much as we knew how. At the time, neither of us would have felt or predicted an affair coming. And then it like came out of nowhere. Bam, it hit me. And as, as you read my book and you read, you know, those things that I did that led up to my marital affair, it is obvious that I am suddenly acting in a way that doesn't fit who Sarah was, who Sarah wanted to be. Um, and then the, the last thing would be this, this, feeling of obligation, despite the fact that your reward is never positive. You know, so like when I talk about my relationship with my dad, it didn't matter how much I did, how much I succeeded. So my dad's love for me was based on my ability to perform and make him look good. And you can, you can see that throughout the book. So things like I started playing the flute in fifth grade. I practiced for hours. I always sat first chair. I auditioned for all the competitions. I went to most of them. I was a very accomplished flautist, not because I loved the flute, but because when I was the best, my parents loved me more. 
And so one of the things that you'll see in a trauma bond is you will be bending over backwards, doing these things for certain people, but it doesn't matter what you do. You are not getting that acknowledgement or recognition. You're not getting words of affirmation. It's not improving an emotional connection, no matter how much effort you're putting into it. And in those cases, I would say, hey, you might want to check yourself. You're probably in a trauma bonded relationship there. Yeah. It it sounds like you're talking about um some sort of inner conflict where you want something deeply and there's something else. So it's like an addiction. Yeah. My husband will tell me because so my husband and I, you know, spoiler alert, my husband and I are still married. We have we just um welcomed uh, a teenager into our home. So now we've got eight children that are ours forever. Wow. Um, yeah, so many kids. That thank you, Mormonism, um, for helping me uh create a big family that I am now overwhelmed by, but love them with everything in my in my soul. Um so but my my husband will tell me, you know, when when Michael is in trouble, even today, you know, so earlier, Deb, you had said that um, completely overcoming the trauma bond. And I'm going to be honest, it's a lifelong journey. It's something I still to this day have to check myself with whenever Michael is in trouble in any way. I have a visceral feeling of obligation to go to his rescue. It's something that I have to kind of check in with a lot. And my husband will tell me. It's almost like you're addicted to Michael. And I don't think it's that I'm addicted to Michael as much as I struggle with that internal conflict that if I don't go rescue him, it is somehow my fault because of what my dad did to him when we were teenagers. And that does not make any academic sense. As a licensed professional counselor, if I had a client telling me that, I'd be like, all right, let's look into this a little bit. Let's kind of tear this apart because you don't have that ownership in it. And yet when it's my life and it's my trauma bond, I have to fight that that same challenge. And and so, yeah, there's there's like this addictive behavioral pattern of, going to the rescue, meeting their need above your own, meeting their need above that of your, you know, your family, your children, um, above your work environment. You know, there's, there's gonna, mm-hmm. you're gonna see some extremes going on that don't make a lot of sense that really interfere with your day-to-day functioning and well-being. Yeah. And you're, you're saying you feel this obligation, this deep obligation that if you don't help rescue him, then there's something in you that's telling you that it's your fault deeply implanted because it sounds like you feel like anything in your life. I mean, you're talking about your parents, the way you were raised, your fault. You were heavily punished (laughs) for lots of I was a family scapegoat. Yep. Mm -hmm. I was, I was the family scapegoat. And one of the things is you read my book, you know, you'll, you'll come to a point. Um, I believe, I don't think it got edited out, but like my dad started blaming me for his and my mom's marital struggles when I was an infant. And he will still say ever since Sarah was born, she has tried to sabotage our mine and my wife's marriage. And it's kind of like, how does a newborn infant sabotage your marriage? Um, it, it's not the infant's fault. And yet my father continues to blame me. And if you were to go and ask my dad about my book, he would tell you Sarah's a liar, Sarah's an exaggerator, nothing in that book is true. And I have to laugh because the honesty in my book is about my dysfunction, right. which if he read it, he'd probably agree with a lot of it. Because there was a time in my life where I absolutely was lying and exaggerating because I, I felt like if I didn't make the story big and dramatic, that nobody would see me and nobody would give me the love that I needed. Like I had to make things extra, extra big to feel seen, heard and loved. And really what was happening is I was pushing everybody away from me because it was uncomfortable for things to be that big, that dramatic and obviously not accurate um, to the situation. So, and I talk about how I overcame that in the book. 
just out of curiosity, has your has your dad read your book? I don't think so. Um, so when I wrote the manuscript in its rough draft, um, I so I talked to an intellectual attorney, so intellectual property attorney, and said, "Hey, can you read this? Let me know what what I need to do." Um, and so I sent the manuscript to my parents and said, "Hey, because I told them number one, I'm writing my memoir. <laughs> You're obviously in it. Um, changed their names." Um, at least their first name, because my, you know, my real maiden last name is Lee. So I changed their first names and tried to obscure their identities as much as possible. But if you know our family personally, then you know who who I'm talking about. Um, But I sent them the manuscript and said, hey, if you feel like anything in here is not accurate, I need you to let me know so that we can address that. And my mom got through about the first half of the first chapter and then said, I can't read this and put it down. And as far as I know, they have not. I sent them again or, or I sent them an email because I don't have contact with them anymore. Um, I caught contact with them completely because it was what was in my children's best interest. So my dad um, has a history of physical and emotional abuse of, of my children. And so I've completely cut contact with them. But I reached out to them by email and said, hey, this is the final manuscript. This is the last chance. We only have about six more weeks to make any changes to this before it's too late. Um, so let me know if you want to. And I got crickets back. There was absolutely no response. So I'm going to say probably not. Um, however, some of my aunts, so my mom's sisters um, and brothers have read it. And I think one of my fathers, so his sister and I think is, has now read it. And it's been really interesting to hear their feedback because they're like, oh, yeah, this is your dad. Like you tagged him really well. And then there's also a lot of we had no idea. Like we knew it was bad. We had no idea it was that bad, which makes sense because my parents wouldn't let anybody really in to our family because we were better than everybody else. We were smarter than everybody else. We sat around the kitchen table and it was like, oh, you know that family? Well, they need to do this to make themselves better like we do. So I kind of grew up with this. We build ourselves up by cutting everybody else around us down. Um, And so that really isolated my family from my aunts and uncles and cousins because my aunts and uncles and cousins, their families were doing everything wrong and our family was doing everything right. So when they came into our home to visit, they were a charity case, which, of course, they didn't like. And my dad was really judgmental and cruel. And so, yeah, there's a lot of funky dynamics in there. How did you um, talk a little bit about it now, how you personally cope and eventually broke free from the trauma bonds enough to cut contact and move on and address some of this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, getting my education in mental health really helped. Um, and so one of the reasons why I wrote my book is I don't want somebody to have to go and, you know, get hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of education to, you know, break these trauma bonds. I want, I want anybody, no matter what you're doing in life, no matter what your passion is to be able to do it. I think the first thing for me was identifying some of the underlying things. So things like when my father got his, so we did some family therapy. Cause I was like, Hey, we, you know, we are so dysfunctional. Let's try and fix this in family therapy. So we, my mom, my dad, and I uh, went to see a family therapist. And the my that was when my dad received his official diagnosis of combined narcissistic personality disorder and borderline personality disorder. So he had both of them. And then the counselor diagnosed my mom with covert narcissistic personality disorder. She's very, a lot more quiet. But still that perfectionism can't be wrong, can't be viewed in a negative light, but a lot more subdued than my father's very overt. I had suspected before that. And then having another professional kind of confirm that was very helpful for me. So understanding that and separating myself from what my family did to me was not personal. Like it was not because of what I had done. I was not at fault for what had happened to me and really embracing that was very beneficial. Um, The next step was that I had to learn how to be honest with myself. And so in the book, there's a story where my second son who was adopted, um, he ended up getting a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And so he had a lot of allergies as a baby, most of which he's grown out of, thank goodness. 
but he also had a lot of behavioral issues because he started to hallucinate as that that we could identify and say this is a hallucination not a really intense daydream or whatever um and so his behavior was so difficult things like and i don't talk about all of this in the book but he would make poop murals anytime he would go to the bathroom he would literally dig his poo out of the potty and then he would paint full-blown pictures in our bathroom and and it was you know very overwhelming he was throwing tantrums a lot he was very violent and aggressive um the good news is he is 19 he is doing amazing he lives next door to my husband and i and he is just he's doing amazing he has overcome so much but when i was you know so i would have been 23 i was exaggerating about all of his symptoms. And one of the things that's really difficult is, you know, if I'm like, hey, he pulls his poop out of the toilet and then paint or out of his diaper and he's painting all these pictures on the wall and he's never sleeping and he's this. When I start exaggerating that, it no longer sounds realistic at all. And and then the doctors, you know, they're they're not dumb. They can see my the holes in my story and when I and so they were like, hey, this is probably a parenting issue. And that stopped me from being able to receive the care that my child needed and that I desperate I desperately needed. I can't do this. Like I don't I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and my husband and I were very much, we're not gonna do it the same way our parents did. And then the few times that we were like, all right, I'm gonna try and swat you holy cow, it just, it didn't work. And so I had to learn with the help of a counselor, you need to be just simply honest. If you're honest, there won't be holes in your story. If you're honest, the doctors are going to hear you better. And so I video recorded some of the things or took pictures of some of the things that I could take them into the doctor and be like, look, this is what we're dealing with. And it was like this night and day difference. As soon as I was being honest, all of a sudden Brig was getting care. And then with the help of a counselor again, it was, okay, how can you translate this into the rest of your life? And it, I had to learn to no longer be like, well, I do this because of my dad, blah, blah, blah. I had to say, hey, yeah, you've got some dysfunction here because of trauma, but how is it working for you? How are your coping skills making things better or worse for you? And so I really had to learn how to take accountability for that. And then the final thing is self-care. I had to learn where my limits were so that I didn't push against them. Because even today, if I'm overly tired or overstimulated or I don't feel very well, if something comes up in those moments, I'm more likely to revert to that younger, uglier Sarah than I am when I'm well-rested, well-fed, managing my stress levels well and those types of things, I really had to learn how to take care of myself and rely on other people because nobody can heal from a trauma bond completely on their own. If you're trying to, you're going to hurt yourself and others. Was that difficult for you when they told you you have to be honest? Nobody ever told me that you have to be honest. Like the way that my counselor had posed it, uh, which I was very grateful for and, and model in my or do my best to model in my own practice, is that he he asked questions. So I think his exact question was something along the lines of, hey, Sarah, how much do you think your tendency to exaggerate is impeding Briggs medical treatment? And when he asked, when he worded it that way, because if he had said, Sarah, your exaggeration is impeding Briggs medical treatment, I'd have been like, no, it's not you. And then he'd probably gotten fired and I'd have never gone back and I'd have never gotten better. Um, But because he worded it as a question and he was genuinely curious, there was no judgment to it. It was just an it was like this internal realization of, oh, my goodness. And then I was able to just take that. You know, I, I was in the right frame of mind, I think, because I was so desperate for needing friends and help and community that it was like, all right, if you're exaggerating to the doctors, what happens if you stop exaggerating with your friends? And all of a sudden, my friend group started to grow and my opportunities for support began to grow and people could trust me. I wasn't trustworthy before that Um, for years. I mean, because when you're talking about, I wouldn't say I was a, um, what is it, pathological liar. I don't think that, that, that wouldn't have fit me, but I was definitely a habitual 
liar or exaggerator. I embellished stories. And that's what had been modeled for me. My dad did the same thing. My mom wouldn't pay attention to us unless our stories were big. So, I mean, yes, it's what I grew up with. It's what I modeled. So, you know, I'm trying to undo a habit from early childhood. And so for me, what ended up happening was as I trialed and aired it out on my own of, hey, honesty actually works better for me and it's working in my favor then I spent the next probably decade and I would start to exaggerate and then I'd catch myself and I'd be like, wait, you know what? That's actually a bit of an exaggeration. Let me start over. And then I would do it honestly. And so for years, it was like, you know what? I'm kind of embellishing this. And usually when I would call out the elephant in the room and say, hey, I'm kind of embellishing. Let me back up and give you a better, a more realistic picture. People would laugh and they'd be like, oh my gosh, I always embellish. And so then we could have a conversation about the fact that, hey, Sarah's not the only one that's exaggerating under stress or when she's looking for attention. And so really, it it had to become something that I wanted for me. I valued integrity. I did not tolerate it at all when somebody else would lie to me. So then I had to be somebody that could be honest. And when I recognized it on my own and then did it on my own, it, it made a huge difference. And I had to do it without shaming myself. I couldn't be like, you horrible person, you, why are you exaggerating? It was more like, I don't really like how this is impacting me. Let me change it. Yeah. And so that really helped because once you start shaming yourself, once you're like, hey, I shouldn't be doing this. This is horrible. I'm a terrible person. Then growth and progress. Stop. It's like Brene Brown's work on shame and vulnerability is very relevant for self-shame. In the sense that if I'm shaming myself, I kill any growth um, in myself. As sure. Well. Yeah. It sets you right back into that loop again. Then you yeah. get the anxiety and then you're back into that habit. Because when you're in the trauma bond, it's kind of hard to recognize. Like you had some reflection and you had to get to some points where things got pretty bad so that you could get to that. But what are some, looking back, some key signs or red flags that somebody might be in a trauma bond or in a relationship that's trauma bond that they might not be aware of? Okay, so fear, um, a lack of trust of other individuals, uh, feeling trapped all the time, Uh, feeling like you have to perform for love would be another one. Um, what else? Um, feeling very disempowered with a lack of hope, uh, feeling like your decisions are vital to making the people around you happy. Um, so, you know, for example, as I grew up, I was practicing my flute, not because I wanted to get better, but because I wanted to make my dad proud of me. Now, it's okay to be like, hey, I want to get better. And I like it when my parents are like, you did great. That's healthy. But I was practicing because if I wasn't the best, love was withdrawn. Um, Fear was like, I was constantly, like if my parents started to get even mildly agitated, I did my best to disappear and get as small as I could. Um, you're going to see a lot of similarity similarities with like domestic violence. Like, oh, it's my fault that so-and-so got insert whatever, whatever it is. If, if you are taking upon yourself the responsibility for other people's responses and reactions, um, that might be a sign that you are in a trauma bond. And then I love what you said, you know, you're like, Hey, you know, you you identified these flags and you were able to get away from it. Well, that's because my environment changed. I was very blessed in the sense that I got married to my husband and he has never been abusive. He was never emotionally coercive. Um, I always felt safe with him. I was not able to get better until my environment had shifted to a place where I felt emotionally and physically safe. And then once I was in that environment for a little while, that's when I was able to go, oh, I don't like that. It's very hard to see the toxicity that you're living in when you're drowning because all you're doing is surviving constantly. 
And when we're in our amygdala brain space, so our amygdala is the survival um, area of our brain. It's a little um, almond. You've got two, so amygdalae or amygdala. Yeah, amygdala. Um, you've got two. They're about the shape and size of an almond in your brain, and it's in charge of your fight, flight, freeze, fawn response. And when you're in that survival area of your brain, your logical, rational, creative problem-solving skills are grossly diminished. So when you're constantly living in survival mode, if you are constantly doing things because everything out there feels like you are going to die if you don't get it done like this, even though it makes no logical sense, there's still that like, like Mormons call it anxiously engaged. If you are anxiously engaged, there's a problem going on here. Like if that's your constant function every now and then, sure but constantly functioning in that anxious, I have to get this this way or else. There's an, there's probably an underlying issue, whether it's a trauma bond or something else. There's probably an underlying issue. So my environment, in order for me to heal the way that I have, mm-hmm. I had to change my environment. There's no way I would have made this growth if I had lived close to my parents, like my husband's military career that took me away from my parents was amazing. I needed that. And then marrying a man that was not my father um, was, was exactly what I needed. That's actually, yeah, it's actually kind of unusual that you didn't end up with a partner that is toxic do you so so you talk about your parents having um the personality disorders which obviously the toxic environment the manipulation and all the rigid rules and everything what about the mormonism it does sound like some of the stuff that you talk about in your book there seems to be a strict set of rules around this how do you reconcile this because there's this rigidity you know, there's rigidity with, of course, the manipulation with the, with your parents, but it almost sounds like there's a little bit of that with the Mormonism, but oh, how you do are you- absolutely right. hundred okay. <laughs> percent. Yeah, you are, you are picking up on some really good signals. So the Mormon church doesn't really like being called Mormon anymore. A couple of years ago, their prophet came out and said, if you use the term Mormon, it's a major victory for Satan. So you need to start calling us the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Having said that, I spent 38 years of my life in that system, and it was okay to be Mormon for that whole 38 years and all the years before um, we embraced the nickname Mormon. So I'm still going to call it the Mormon Church because that is my experience. That's my worldview was I was in the Mormon Church, and Mormon is a much more popular nickname. Um, So yes, Mormonism has a lot of cult-like tendencies. Um, Mormonism also breeds and, and any truly any high demand religion breeds um, borderline personality, narcissism, histrionics. So we're talking about like those cluster B personality disorders, which are kind of your um, a lot of emotional variability, a lot of dramatic, a lot of ambivalence. So lots of like mixed mixed feelings. You know, I love you. Stay away from me. I hate you. I can't get enough of you. Like you're going to see a lot of that going on there. And the theory behind that is because you're in an environment where you're not allowed to talk about the difficult things, the real difficult things going on for you, because again, you have to perform. So in Mormonism, you're, they believe that you can become gods eventually. Now they've recently taken that off their website and they're trying to kind of mellow that out. But when I was growing up, it was very much you are constantly doing and following all of these rules because if you break them, you will not be able to get back to heaven to live with God and to live with your family again. And in order to get there, you have to go through all of these rituals. Oh, and anybody who leaves our system is dangerous. They're apostates. They are going to hurt you. They're going to break your testimony. You don't want to leave. So what ends up happening there is that even when, so it's a high demand religion. So my husband served as the bishop um, of that religion. So he was working for the military. He's a, my husband's a nurse anesthetist. 
anesthetist, a doctorate level nurse anesthetist. So he was working his 40 to 45 hours a week in the military on normal days. And then oh, when he's in the field or or whatever, uh, he's on the clock like constantly. Anybody who's been in the military is like only 40 hours. Okay. That was the, those were the calm minutes. Okay. And on the army minutes, I don't know, 95 hours a week, whatever, whatever they do. So he's working with his military career. He went through medical school, all of these things. And at the same time was probably dedicating anywhere from 20 to 30 hours a week also to the Mormon church, because we have been taught that if you are not anxiously engaged in doing all of these things for the church, so you can bring more people to God, your salvation is threatened. And so he and I were both in leadership. So while he's doing that, I too am in leadership and I'm getting my master's degree and I'm raising at that point, six kids or seven kids. I've got right now, so out of our, out of the eight and the one that just joined us is 16. So um, of my eight children, I've had seven of them since they were very, very small. Um, So I'm raising, like, I've got two on the autism spectrum. I've got one with schizophrenia and our newest one has severe ADHD and PTSD. So, you know, I'm dealing with special needs children. I'm getting my master's degree. I'm working for free because when you do behavioral health, your practicum and internship is usually unpaid, at least while you're doing graduate school. And then after that, you're paid like minimum wage and sometimes even a little bit less to get all of those clinical hours in so that you can have your license unsupervised. So I'm doing all of that. And I'm a stay-at-home mom because good Mormon women are stay-at-home moms. They're not supposed to work outside of the home. The men are supposed to provide. The women are supposed to raise the kids. Um, So I'm, I'm staying at home. And to be the best Mormon mom ever, I'm cooking pretty much everything from scratch. I'm making my own bread. I'm canning my own vegetables, making my own applesauce. Like I am a pioneer, like traditional, uh, the world is going to end and Jesus is going to come back and I better have a year's supply of food going on. Like there's a lot going on there. And I'm also giving the church 20 to 30 hours a week in active service, like running programs, visiting people, planning, like it's basically a second full-time job. And then on top of that, we're also donating 10% of our gross income in tithing. So when you're looking at these high demand religions, it's like, okay, what is the benefit that the member is getting out of it? And the only thing that you're getting out of Mormonism is a benefit to you. I mean, yes, you're learning to serve. Yes, you're learning to be generous. I mean, I know how to make bread and canned food. Like I've got some pretty amazing, I can sew pretty much anything you want me to. I've got some amazing 1800 style skills under my belt. Okay. I can like grind my own wheat from hand, y'all. Yeah, mad skills. I don't know how you do it. (laughs) Yeah. So I I don't do it very often anymore because, but you know, what am I getting out of it? And when you look at it, it's all existential promises that you have no way to measure and and no way to fix that. So things like the Mormon church actively teaches that if you are financially strapped and you can't put food on the table for your own family, pay your tithing, have faith, and the Lord will provide. And so when my husband and I were absolutely destitute, at you know certain times in our marriage, especially when he was enlisted in the military and we had really small kids, you know we'd we'd have like a natural disaster come through and we couldn't even afford the deductible for our homeowners insurance. Well, pay your tithing and the Lord will provide. So what we ended up with paying our tithing and then going into an, a massive amount of debt, trying to fix this when if we had just not paid tithing and invested that money or put it in our own savings account or, you know, done all of these other things when we were making jack squat and could only donate, you know, a few bucks here and a few bucks there to our own savings account. Well, when those hard times came, we'd have had a rainy day fund that we could have depended on on ourselves and we would have never needed the extra aid or we, you know, like I remember months living on beans and rice um, because that's all we could really afford to feed our family while we were still giving the Mormon church five to $800 a month, because that was 10% of our gross income and whatnot. And so you really kind of look at this cause and effect. What are the rewards I'm getting from this 
that are tangible that I can hang on to. Because when the only promises are existential, you get to live with God, you're going to have a greater kingdom. Um, those types of things like Mormonism believes in polygamy. I know that that's one of the really popular things. They don't actively practice it today. But in heaven, if my husband is a god, he gets multiple wives because he's got to populate the worlds that he's going to create. And so really for me, I had to start like kind of doing a reality check. It was like, do I want the Mormon heaven where, because, you know, I had six kids at the time. Um, we adopted our seventh while I was kind of on my way out of Mormonism. But so at the time I have six kids, I'm teaching seminary. I'm, I'm like doing all kinds of stuff for the Mormon church. And then I'm thinking, do I really want to go to the Mormon heaven? Because I'm an army wife. I already know what it's like to be alone. I already know what it's like to have more kids than I feel like I can handle. Um, I already know what this is like. And I'm like, do I want to go to heaven and do this all over again? Like if my husband has thousands and thousands of wives, he's going to have like, what, 10 seconds with me so he can have sex with me and get me pregnant again so I can pop out another because they believe like what we were taught was that was it worked the same way that it does here on this earth. And I'm like, I don't really want to spend eternity pregnant and raising kids without my husband, like put me in a lower kingdom where I can just rest. That sounds great. And so as they started to really challenge that, it's like, what can I hold on to? What am I getting out of Mormonism that is tangible that I can hang on to with everything that I'm investing? Because if I was investing that much time into any other endeavor, there would be income. So in Mormonism, you do all of this work, you don't get paid. Like my husband was a bishop, which is like the equivalent to a pastor or a priest. We did not get paid a dime for that. He did that all on his own. Um, I taught early morning seminary, which is basically the equivalent of teaching one period of a high school course every single morning at like five o'clock in the morning. I didn't get paid anything for that. In fact, I donated my time, my money, and my resources for that so that I could participate in indoctrinating more teenagers and thinking that I was doing the right thing. Wow. My trauma bond with the Mormon church is that they took so much from me with no return, but then there's this list of rules that you have to follow. And really all of those rules are follow your leaders, do what they say without any question. And we're going to, and if you, and if you do all these things and you serve yourself to death, you will live happily forever in heaven for eternity with your family. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So what so they, is your spirituality? Because it sounds like this is all rules that's taking almost all your resources. It's breeding to tune into the operating system or the the ego or the will versus your truer, you know, inner wisdom, which is what you kind of talked about in the beginning. You're not doing the right thing. You're following the trauma bond. What? So what is your spirituality? belief now are you still with the mormon no i left mormonism um so i am almost 43 i left mormonism officially around when i was 38 38 39 somewhere in there um but i had been like struggling with is it okay for me to leave is it not okay for me to leave for probably almost a decade before that where i was just like i am so burned out i just can't keep going with this mormons are actually very spiritual people. Um, they they believe in the New Testament Jesus. Um, they're serving, they're trying to serve 
um, the best that they know how they're trying to do really great things. So I would say that they are a very spiritual people. For me today, I've redefined what spirituality means. In Mormonism, spirituality meant follow the rules, do what you're supposed to do, and everything will work out in the end. Now, I define spirituality very much as how are you connecting with other living things? So, you know, our environment, people, animals, if it's if it's a living organism, how are you connecting with that? And that would include a higher power. I believe that there's something there. Um, I can't know, which feels really good because in Mormonism, you quote unquote know that Joseph Smith was a true prophet of God. You quote unquote know all of these things. And there's no way to know those things. And so I'm able to say, I don't know what my higher power looks like, but I feel like there's something bigger than me that connects all living things together. How am I contributing in a way that benefits all of this living, all of these living things around me? What is, what is my part in bringing goodness to that? And as long as I'm doing my best to do that, I think I'm okay. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now. Um, but yeah, definitely not Mormon. Uh-uh. And you're, you're definitely doing your part in bringing your, I, I guess your, your wisdom, your understandings, your honesty, your authenticity, you know, helping others heal, helping others come through this. Would you say that your spirituality played a part in your healing or plays a part in your healing? Yeah, absolutely. Because in Mormonism, I trusted a rule. In Mormonism, I trusted a man I had never met to tell me what was true and what wasn't true and what goals I needed to have and how I needed to respond to certain things, um, how I was supposed to dress. I trusted somebody that didn't know me. And now I'm in a position where I trust myself to look around me and say, what is needed that is within my circle of control and influence? I'm going to show up to the best of my ability right here based on my own observations, based on my my own influence, um, based on my own level of expertise. Like if you ask me to go start a farm, I'm not going to, that is not my area of expertise. It might be great for, you know, farm animals, certain things. But that's not that's not my area. My area is trauma. And so, you know, things like I I do my best to provide pro bono services to individuals who are just destitute and can't. You know, my husband and I are looking at starting up a grant so that we can help individuals get resources. I'm writing a book right now that's the follow up to Trauma Bonded. Um, that's going to be like trauma bonded, the workbook or something like that, that basically will give you the first 16 weeks of the curriculum that I've developed that I use with my clients. Um, so that way you can buy it and and work yourself through that. I want to make those resources available and I want to speak out about this so that those who fall in an area of need that I can positively impact. I'm going to lean into that. And as I lean into that and I get this feedback loop of thank you, that really changed my life. That helped my perspective that that like lifts my soul and not in a, hey, look at me. I'm the smartest in the room. I'm the best therapist ever. It doesn't do that. It's more like it brings me so much joy that somebody else found wisdom because I spoke and they happened to hear it for whatever reason, why they heard me and said, because there's hundreds of thousands of amazing mental health professionals out there, but they heard me. And so I'm really glad that when they heard my voice, they experienced insight and healing to improve their circumstances. And, and that just, it brings me so much more joy. Um, and I'm connected on an individual basis with those individuals and with those animals and with the nature that I can touch. I am connected. I hold responsibility. Like the closer you are to what you're working with, Mm -hmm. I think just the better it is, the more personal it is. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's profound. And and it kind of goes back to the beginning of this, when you were talking about um, 
what you were doing based on your programming of trauma bond, your sense of obligation based on that programming and I'd kind of adhering to the, um, I guess the schema that you're telling yourself that it's your fault, everything's your fault versus knowing yourself, your true self, like, what do you, what's really, what do you really want? Yeah. Well, and, and, and what do I really value? Mm-hmm. Like what, what do I value? Um, because one of the things that helped me break free from my parents was my greatest value right now is these children that I have chosen to raise and I cannot stand by and know that something is harming them and do nothing. And as soon as it became about, I need to protect them, breaking free from my father became very easy because I was like, I don't want them to suffer the way that I have suffered. I would never knowingly do that to anybody because of how hard it is to heal. And I really want to speak to that. Like, you know, people will look at me and say, well, you've got all these skills. You've got all this knowledge. You're amazing. Like, I can't do that. And when I say, if you look at my book, it starts in 19, like 84, I'm like three or four years old. And it ends when I'm 39. You're looking at almost four decades to get me to where I am. And I'm here to say that Some days it's still really, really hard. It gets easier the more I practice being who I want to be and who I am. It gets easier, but I still have bad days. And if you could see me on those bad days, like, you know, people listen to these podcasts and whatnot, you know, I'm I'm having a good day. If I wasn't, I'd be doing self-care, hiding in a bathtub, you know, eating some chocolate brownies, marinating in brownie chocolate crumbs. It'd be amazing. Um, (laughs) That's what I would be doing instead. So what you're seeing is the best of me. Don't compare Sarah's best to your worst. Recognize we're talking about four decades of struggle. And I know that sounds overwhelming. um, But when I was going through it, we didn't have the same mental health knowledge that we do now. So lean into the resources um, that are available to you on like a Google search um, lean into that because we have so much more information now. So as you use that, it's not going to take you as long as it took, as it took me. So. Yeah. It's not easy either. Breaking no, it's that. Not. I've, yeah. I've spent years in therapy, even as a therapist, I still have two therapists that I go to for my own well-being when my trauma starts to show up and impact me in ways that like I've recognized the patterns and I'm like, Ooh, I'm right at the beginning of this bad cycle. Let me go into therapy. Let me have somebody else hold that space for me so I can figure it out because I'm telling you, I I can have all the education in the world when I'm in survival brain. I don't use it. So I go to somebody else. I've like made that a pattern. I'm going to go to somebody else that I trust to have my best interest in mind and not judge me at all. And get that help. And so, yeah, I'm a, you know, almost 43 year old therapist. I've been in clinical practice for a long time. 2000, goodness, 12. So 2012, so 11 years, almost 12 years um, that I've been doing this. I still go get therapy when my gremlins, you know, Brene Brown calls them shame gremlins. I'm going to say my, my trauma demons, when they show up, I reach out to people who I know can help me work through it so that I don't spiral into those darker places that I have been in the past. I think we all need that. I think everybody, I mean, that's a good idea. You can't do it alone. You have to have that reflected back to you. Is there anything else that you want to add? Because unfortunately, we are almost out of time. Uh, Do you have any other questions for me? I have tons of other questions, but I don't have time to ask you. (laughs) Well, you're always welcome to reach out to me and ask. Um, I would say that any of your listeners, I love interacting with the community. You can email me at daisygirlcommunications at gmail.com. That's communications with an S. So daisygirlcommunications, all traditional spelling, at gmail.com with any questions. And I'm really an open book. So you are very welcome to email me and, and I can give you the, you know, I'll give you the best answers I know how. Recognize I won't do counseling for you in that space. That's a little unethical, Um, but I can definitely point you 
to some good resources and whatnot. And Deb, anytime you ask me a question, just give me an email. I I absolutely will. And um, I, I am, I mean, it is unfortunate that we're out of time. So this will have to conclude the interview with Sarah Westbrook, the author, again, of Trauma Bonded, A True Story of Navigating Attachments Forged in Complex PTSD. And I am truly grateful to you, Sarah, for sharing your personal journey and joining me on this podcast and for writing your book. Your story um, reminds us all that healing from trauma is a courageous and ongoing process. Your experiences and wisdom offer hope for those who are currently trapped in toxic relationships or navigating the aftermath of trauma bonds. And I encourage everyone listening to pick up a copy of Trauma Bonded. This is a great book and it provides an excellent, excellent example of trauma bonding in action. It's a very good read. Thank you again, Sarah, for shedding light on this topic. Um, And I wish you continued success in your mission to help others overcome trauma bonding. And um, I will attach those links to this show so that you can reach out to Sarah and also so that you can find the book. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to the Inner Source Healing Podcast. It is important to give yourself the self-compassion that you deserve. And remember that your feelings matter. If you want more information or if you want to contact me, please visit my website at www.innersourcetherapy.com.